Cole, and welcome to Down to Sally's Cove, a collection of stories about Newfoundland and Labrador by the late Ella Manuel and read by me, Anthony Berger. I'm the editor of my mother's writings about the history and rich culture of the places and people she knew and loved. Many of these stories she read on local and national radio in the 1940s to 1970s. In the next four episodes, Ella Manuel describes the goings-on of a typical year in mid-20th century Bon Bay, now the heart of Grossmoor National Park in western Newfoundland. The events she relates might well have taken place in many another outport, for they illustrate something of the traditions and culture of rural Newfoundland and Labrador. This episode begins as Ella returns to Woody Point after a winter on the mainland, rants about protests over the seal fishery, meets old friends again, hears new stories, and samples funnel buns. I think I must have been one of the first to come back this year, but maybe I don't count. I return every year. That is when I'm foolish enough to go away in the first place. No matter how many times I do it, coming home is a special experience. I commence to relax and smile and whistle while I'm driving alone, just about when I reach the causeway leading to Cape Breton. And by the time I reach Tompkins, I'm singing at the top of my voice, waving to everyone on the roads and tooting my horn at the trucks that pass. It's the nearest thing to a state of euphoria. It comes from feeling completely part of my surroundings and from not having to explain myself and my very strange habit of living in Newfoundland. I shan't forget for a long time the shock I had when I was being interviewed on television in Toronto and the commentator asked me why people live in Newfoundland anyhow, as if we needed a certificate of insanity to do it. I took a deep breath and replied that I suppose some people lived there because that was where they were born, some because they hadn't thought of living elsewhere, and many, like me, who couldn't possibly live anywhere else, and we'd given anywhere else a good try. Then, would you believe it, after all these years, he asked me how I liked being a Canadian. I told him that, after all, I'd gone to the polls and voted to be one, which is more than other Canadians had done. He was a bit taken aback, having, I believe, thought that we had been annexed by force. What I couldn't say, and what I do not myself know, is why the lovely landscape in the eastern townships of Quebec gives me no ecstatic thrill, and lacks the drawing power that even the cliffs outside Porta Basque overwhelm me with, like other hills as perfect in outline. Or why a stunted spruce that from my window cutting vertically across the sweep of the bay, is the most majestic tree I've ever seen. I wouldn't care if I never saw the Laurentians again, but tell me my eyes would never rest on gross morn, and I would perish. I came home this time in good May weather, when the snow was almost gone and the pussy willows out along sheltered roadsides, and the trees I had so hopefully planted in my garden last fall showing signs of life. But within three days we had a snowstorm and I was marooned for almost a week and had to get around on snowshoes. Of course I'd already performed the special rites of spring, taking off the storm door and windows and clearing out the accumulation in the cellar to dry and air in the sun. So I was well and truly caught by the storm. And so were a lot of other people who should have known better. 
Uh, one thing I could have missed with pleasure when I was away from home was the stink about the seal hunt. Thousands of words have been written and spoken, thousands of opinions given, most of them quite uninformed. One man told me quite seriously that there was no danger in sealing. Of course not. He'd been put down in a helicopter on the ice near Anticosti, and as he put it, it was like walking on a skating pond in Place des Armes. I asked how long he'd stayed, and he said, oh, about 15 minutes. And I suggested that if he'd come back five hours later, he wouldn't have found his skating pond. And he's supposed to be the expert on various forms of cruelty practiced on seals and the appalling depths of bloodthirstiness we Newfoundlanders are capable of. You know, for my part, this whole thing hurts my pride, angers and frustrates me. I'm one of those, and I know there are several thousand others, who grew up admiring and being proud of our old sealing skippers, and who found excitement and adventure in the hardy deeds of our men and their heroism in disasters that overcame them. We marveled at the tenacity of sealers for going year after year to hunt for seals, and often returning with almost nothing. Now, the organization I was working with in Toronto had been receiving a flood of letters opposing the slaughter from people who shouldn't get away with it. Neither should the well-meaning non-cruelty-to-animals people, nor the silly ones who take up this cause to salve their conscience for not making a stand on cruelty to people all over the world. Some of our bright young writers should write about the history of sealing and the truth about the hunting methods used. But back to my homecoming. When I arrived, everything in my house worked properly. The stove burned without smoke. Lights went on and the water ran from the tap, though with a curious gurgle. Bill had investigated, found a broken joint in the outside line, and guessed that a horse had breezed on it, or maybe a moose. He'd mended that, and the gap in my fence where the sheep had got in and nibbled the new shoots off my little trees. That was John done that, Bill said, coming to get the hay and didn't put up the stiles. Slivine, I said. Bill replied piously, may God forgive you for not calling him something worse. That remark, I might say, was worth coming home for. As was this delightful story that Mr. Anstey told me about the zeppelin over famished gut. I minds the time after the first war when I was down in famished gut, what they call fair haven nowadays. One morning after me breakfast, I went down the road, and there were big crowds of people out. The women were pulling their hair and crying, and the men was running around everywhere. And there, coming down on us, was this big balloon thing. It come in me mind then, that before I left St. John's, I read in a paper that an English Zeppelin airship was coming over, and I knowed right away that was it. The next thing I thought was I'd better go to every house and tell them, cause I knowed they never saw a newspaper. Well, as I was running along, I see an old man with a girt big sealing gun. I'm going to shoot that ting, he said, and with me three-quarter shot, I can hit it too. Oh my, I said, don't do that. That's a British Zeppelin. The old man lowered his gun. British, is she? Then I'll leave her bide. So uh, anyway, I ran on till I was out of breath. I got to the last home in the cove, and there in the kitchen, such an uproar dirty dishes and cups on the table, and everyone sitting mournful, crying and praying. I asked him what was going on. 
The old man at the head of the table told me they were sitting there having their breakfast when the oldest girl looked out the window and hollered out, Oh my, the world's to an end. Here comes the blessed lard. Then she fainted, and we can't get her too, so we left her lay where Jesus flang her. And there she was, face what is a tombstone, straight out on the floor looking dead. Well, not quite believing the story, but relishing every word, I asked Mr. Anstey what on earth a zeppelin was doing in famished gut. Oh, she lost her way, and she was trying to pick up the rail tracks and follow them to St. John's. And did she, I asked? Oh, yes, indeed she did, and she come down in Kittivitty Pond, but before they could throw out the anchor, she bounced up, and she kept bouncing up and down, and they say the last feller jumped out twenty feet before she bounced the last time and went out over the water and was never seen no more. Now that things were all right in my little world again, I met at M. Tapper's house for a morning mug-up. She was making bread and thought I might like to try funnel buns. Whatever are they? I inquired. Well, if you don't know, I'll show you, she said. She unwrapped the bread, dough from its blanket, cut a thin slice off the top, flattened it deftly, and slapped it against the hot stovepipe, where it soon gave off an indescribably lovely smell of baking bread and toast. Peeling it off the pipe, she covered it with butter and folded it neatly for my delectation. Later, after we'd fetched the mail and bought our groceries, we watched the little skiffs loaded with lobster pots chugging out on the glass calm water. Soon it would be the first hauling, though it was still so cold at night that ice formed in the boats and on the long ropes that had to be handled to get the pots off the bottom. Sixty cents a pound, we decided, wasn't too much to pay for the discomfort the men went through. That morning, Harvey had told me that he wouldn't put out any pots this year. The way I got it figured, he said, is that if I puts out me pots, I'll only catch lobsters other fellers could have had. So I'm just going to take the lobsters out of their pots and save us all the trouble. Well, how are you anyhow after the winter, I inquired. Lovely, me maid, lovely. And did you see anyone on the main line you like better than me? Oh, Lord, no, that's impossible, I told him, embarrassed at my vehemence. Now things are back to normal again, except for today's three-foot snowfall, which a day's southwest wind will soon melt. A long, lazy, lovely summer lies ahead of us. That was me, Anthony Berger, reading a story by the late El Emanuel from the podcast series Down to Sally's Cove. This was recorded in the studios of VOBB, the Voice of Bombay, community radio in the heart of Grossmoor National Park in western Newfoundland. Recording engineer and sound editor was Gary Wilton. Background music from Coffee in the Cove, written and played by David Berger. Together with a biography of my mother, these and other stories are available in book form entitled No Place for a Woman, The Life and Newfoundland Stories of El Emanuel, published in 2020 by Breakwater Books, St. John's, Newfoundland and Labrador. Thanks for listening.